Richard Blissbrook here. We are live. We sit here today with none other than Mark Victor Hansen. Bob Proctor. This is Kendra Hall. Tanya Stringer. Jeff Canfield. Whit Jones. James Clear. Les Brown. People want to hear stories. I like getting stories out of my guests here. So thanks for joining us. Les Brown is a national treasure and a global powerhouse of inspiration. He is to millions of ambitious souls, the inspirational source of their dreams and the wind beneath their wings. Les was born with his twin brother, Wesley, in Liberty City, Florida, a low-income section of Miami. At six weeks old, the boys were adopted by Marmy Brown, a 38-year-old single mom and domestic worker. Les was introduced to personal development, positive thinking, and some of the great minds of our time at the age of 10, when he worked part-time cleaning the office of Mr. Sidarsky, who listened to the likes of Norman Vincent Peale, Earl Nightingale, and Ernest Holmes. Les loved to eavesdrop on the messages of hope and abundance. In spite of being labeled mentally retarded and the dumb twin in grade school, Les used the consistent messages of innate greatness in all of us to build his own vision for his life and the confidence to pull it off. Les is the best-selling author of several books, including You've Got to Be Hungry and his audio series, Choosing Your Future, is widely acclaimed for inspiring millions of people around the world. In 1990, Les recorded the Emmy Award-winning series of speeches entitled You Deserve, which became the lead fundraising program of its kind for pledges to PBS stations nationwide. As a world-renowned motivational speaker, Les has received the National Speaker Association's highest award, the Council of Peers Award for Excellence, as well as the prestigious Golden Gravel Award from Toastmasters International. Les Brown is deeply respected by his peers and his patients. When Dr. Brown is in the house, people listen. I created a lifelong vision of my own in getting Les to join me for a fireside chat with several hundred of my teammates. Join us for the next 20 minutes as Les shares some of his most potent stories and wisdom. I've listened to this interview dozens of times and I always get something new and moving. I promise you will too. One of the things about being raised in a poor area, you're poor, but you don't know it. Mm-hmm. And the contrast for me came going across the Venetian Causeway in Miami, over to Miami Beach, mm-hmm. as my mother was a domestic worker. And I said, Mama, why can't we stay here? We had fans. They had air conditioners. They had cushioned carpet. We had linoleum. And so for the first time going to work with her and seeing this other world, Miami Beach was. And this is the time when my favorite programs, when television was television, then my favorite characters like, Good night, Miss Calavish, wherever you are. <laughs> Jimmy Durandy, good night, good night, good night. <laughs> you know, I came up looking at television and fantasizing. There's a program called The Millionaire. John Beresford Tipton, who sent a guy out named Michael Anthony to give a family a million dollars each week. And every week when that program would go off, 
someone come to the door, I would run to the door. Mama said, where are you going? I said, I thought that's man with a check. <laughs> he said, if he was in Liberty City, he'd got robbed before he got here. <laughs> and that environment on Miami Beach created a thirst and a hunger for another life and made me uncomfortable with life as I was living up to that point was very comfortable, okay? And so fortunately for me, the family, Mr. Sadursky, I had to take care of his needs. I had to shine his shoes and keep his office immaculate. And, and he would say, Leslie, yes, sir, come in here, young man. Look at the dust here. And he would tell me, and his guests would be there. And, and, and he was very, very demanding and very vocal. And so people would say to him, don't be so mean to him. But the truth of the matter, he was right. I did not clean the office as well as I could have. And the reason I did not is because I wanted to be in the office with him. Because he had a ritual. Every morning he got up and he listened to Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. And he listened to Earl Nightingale, the strangest secret in the world, and lead the field. And this is when records were 78 and then they went to 45. Okay. And Ernest Holmes, this thing called life. And so being in his room, shining his heels, listening in that immersion process began to create, as you said, new impressions on my mind. So when we caught the bus back over to Liberty City in Overtown, in this drug-infested poverty area, my brothers and sisters would look out of the window and say, that's my Studebaker, that's my Edsel, that's my Cadillac. And I would be saying, that's my home, that's my hotel. And the difference was the impressions those words made on my mind. Language is everything. What separates people, that language, yes. Was that the first time you ever heard personal development? Yes, that was the first time. How old were you? I was 10 years old at that time. And, and then Mr. Washington, when I was in the 11th grade, he started feeding me other materials by Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. And Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who wrote, if you can determine what a man shall think, you never have to concern yourself with what he will do. He said, if you can make a man feel inferior, you never have to compel him to seek an inferior status, for he will seek it himself. And if you can make a man feel justly an outcast, never have to order him to go to the back door, he'll go without being told. And if there's no door, his very nature will demand one. And so reading those things, and, and you know, Charlie Tremendous Jones who just passed, has said you can determine a person's future by the number of friends they have and then the number of books that they read. I became a voracious reader and listening to motivational messages to inundate my mind with information because being called the dumb twin, I was constantly trying to prove myself that Where I was the dumb, the dumb twin. Where twin come from? When's the first I, time you heard that? I was in the fifth grade. Who said it? Mrs. Mary Ford Williams, the principal, identified several students who were asked several questions and I couldn't answer. I panicked. And so she said, he needs to be put back, he needs to be put back. And so it was very embarrassing having a twin brother who had A's and B's, never missed school, and there I was, called DT, the dumb twin, had to be put back from the fifth grade to the fourth grade and failed again while I was in the eighth grade. Do you remember when you first heard dumb twin what you thought about that? Oh, absolutely. I, I said within myself, initially, I was not the dumb twin when they called me DT. But after a while, 
I started answering to it. When they called me the dumb twin, I accepted it, and that became the story of my life. Mr. Washington interrupted the story in the 11th grade. And interesting, all of my grades reflected that image, that vision I had of myself, because no one rises to low expectations. Mm -hmm. It was how they treated me. They treated me like I was a dumb twin. They called me the dumb twin. I believe that. I took on the identity. Faith comes by hearing and hearing. And so then Mr. Washington, who was a proponent in the whole area of self-development, coupled with the things that I heard earlier that I didn't have enough knowledge and maturity to filter, but they were there, those thoughts being exposed to those messages on a regular basis. I heard things, but I did not understand them. Even now, I heard a stranger secret last week, and I'm 65 now. And I heard something I had not heard before. Wow. Because my life is in a different place. How many times do you think you listen to The Strangest Secret? Probably over 2,000 times. That between um, Secret of the Ages by Robert Collier, I've read that probably around 300 times. <laughs> I took my oldest son for a walk one day, and I said, Calvin, we're walking about 20 minutes. I said, let me ask you something. I said, do you want to be successful? He said, yes, Dad, I do. I said, very good. Let's walk, son. We walk for another 45 minutes. I said, I want to ask you another question. I said, do you expect to be successful? And he paused, because he knew the question. Because want shows up in conversation. Expectation shows up in behavior. I said, you are a single father. You're very brilliant. You should have gone to college, and you did not. She said, I just want to sit out a year, and it's been eight years now. <laughs> You're behind on your dreams and your bills. And you know, if I had a quarter and I was about to die, I would swallow it. I'm not leaving you anything. Because it's not what you leave for your children. It's what you leave in your children. Very cool. Okay. The expectation, I know if you expect to lose weight because I'll see you in the gym. I'll see you making different choices about your food. I'll see you being around other healthy people because people rub off on you. Expectation shows up in life service. Want shows up in lip service. Hope gives you a vision of yourself in the future. You're living out of your imagination. Einstein said the imagination is the preview of what's to come. And so hope is the vision of what's to come. And the commitment gives you the wherewithal to stand your ground, to continue to falling forward until the manifestation get into alignment with your thoughts, your words, your feelings, and your actions to create the opening in the universe for this miracle working power in you to produce what you vision in the hope. Help me somebody. <laughs> well... <laughs> There's something you said that's key, that's very important and very powerful. What is it that you have chosen to believe? Mm. For 14 years, I would go see Zig Ziglar, who I consider the number one motivational speaker on the planet. 
between he and, and Tony Robbins, it doesn't get any better than that. Of course, I got to put Jim Rohn in there too. <laughs> when the end comes for you, let it find you conquering a new mountain, not sliding down an old one. I saturated my mind. I wore their tapes out. And what I realized for the 14 years that I was procrastinating, I remember going to see a gentleman who was very boring and I, and I wanted to speak. Because there are certain people that will only hear your voice. There are certain people that will hear your voice and that's your assignment. And there are people that's going to hear my voice. That's my assignment. There are some of you here. There are people that's, that if you don't speak, you've got something to say. That if you don't speak, there are people who will go to their graves. That is your assignment that you didn't speak to. And so I kept myself silent because I don't have a college education. Because I never worked for a major corporation. And because I chose to believe that I was not good enough. And then this speaker spoke. And, and, and I want you to write this down. Distract, dispute, and inspire. He distracted me from that story that I told myself I wasn't good enough. What do I have to say? Who would listen to me? And he said, as he was speaking, I know, and I was in a room of people who, were, who we were there thinking about speaking. He said, I know that as I look out in this room, and most of you sleep because I'm monotone. I don't have a lot of energy and personality and passion. He said, but let me tell you this so you don't waste your time. He said, the majority of you in here could speak me under a table. But the reason that I'm standing up here and you are seated out there is because I represent the thoughts you have rejected for yourself. Whoa. For 14 years, I said, I could do that. My heart said that. Then my mind said, how will you do that, Les Brown? You don't have a college education. What the psychologists call our self-explanatory style, you're not good enough. Who would dare listen to you? And I kept putting myself down. He said, I represent the thoughts you have rejected for yourself. And where would we get that affirmation? We don't get it in school. They teach us about reading, writing, and arithmetic. We don't get it in college, helping us to get a vision of ourselves beyond our circumstances and, and mental conditioning. Where would we get that? No institutions. We go to church. They sell us on religion, but they don't tell us who we are. You know, the first question God asks, man, where art thou? Where art thou? Where are you? I did a, a sermon recently at this church called the day that God ran from his enemy. And, and they say the two most important questions God ever asked man, number one, where are you? Number two, what are you doing here? And so we don't get any validation except through these tools here that we've mm. been exposed to individuals like yourself, that we're telling a story. And I was, I was talking to this minister yesterday, and he told me, he said, I want you to come speak to my church. I said, do you know the difference between you and I? He said, no, but I heard you talk about your favorite book. I said, I know. I said, you preach the gospel about Jesus. He said, yes. I said, I preach the gospel that Jesus preached. And he said, You say that he died so that I can die 
and then live after I die. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He said, he's the answer. He said, these things ye should do and greater things shall ye do. He said, whoa. <laughs> he said, when you coming, when you coming. <laughs> I'm just a basic, simple person. I just think that we're here to do some work. Everything that exists on this planet, it, it, it came after we showed up. Airplanes, air conditionings, hotels, computers. We've made more progress in the last five years than in the last 5,000 years. Right. A shift has taken place in the planet. This work that you're now doing is more important now than ever before. Why? You're messengers of hope. We're dealers of hope, as, as Napoleon Hill will say. Because people need to know, in the meantime, in the between time, you can make it. Now, it's going to be tough. You've got to die to who you are now. You've got to kill off who you have been. That won't cut it right now. Einstein said, the thinking that has brought me this far has created some problems that this thinking can't solve. So we have to begin consciously and deliberately to make a radical change in our behavior and flexibility and become more flexible and versatile. When I was a kid, I used to work at a bowling alley. We jumped down when people knocked the pins down and straightened the pins back up. Technology came in and invented a trade. We lost a job. I used to be on elevator. Elevator boy? Yes, sir. Fourth floor. Yes, sir. Got it. Now, you get on the elevator. We don't need an elevator boy, right? Technology, okay? When I was in school, the most cherished job girls looked forward to doing, I'm going to be an operator. You had to call an operator and make a long-distance phone call. Because of technology, we don't need that anymore. So now, because of technology and a global economy, cheap labor abroad, we have to reinvent ourselves because technology has now eliminated entire industries. Every time we text message, every time we email, who's writing letters and going to the mailbox, buying a stamp and putting it in the mailbox? That's a whole industry that's been impacted. Things have changed. And now we have got to be, number one, faithful and hopeful that we can make the adjustment. And we can. And we need people to remind us, you can do it. You can do it. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on yourself. This will change your life. I believe I'm here because of God's grace and mercy. And I know that when I read The Biology of Hope by Dr. Norman Cousins, mm -hmm. when I read that book about the biology of hope, everybody, I want you to shake someone's hand on your right and left. Look them in the eyes right now and say, things are going to get better for you. Do that right now. Things, things are, are going to get, get better, better for you. Things, things are going to get better, better for you. Now, just with that statement, there's a feeling that we get that produces a chemical that goes to the stratum area of the brain that gives us a sense of wellness in our body. As people listen, this will affect them at the cellular level as they hear my voice. I was sleeping on the floor of the Penobscot building, 21st floor, bathing in the sink down the hall calling forth this life that I'm now living. From the time when I was doing this, I was sleeping in my office. From that time to this time, I've earned over $55 million, okay? So I'm telling you about this works because I was calling it forth. I was teaching a class. They didn't know. The people in the audience didn't know. They called, people say it's fake until you make it. I wasn't faking it. 
that was just what the life was. I mean, that's just where I was. All of us have our moments in the Garden of Gethsemane. All of us, I don't care who you are, even eagles need a push. Life is going to tap you on the shoulder, okay? Yeah, and it's not personal. You know, don't ask, why did this have to happen to me? Why not you? Who would you suggest? Yeah, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And I just look forward to seeing you, and especially this afternoon. I'm excited about working with you. I love your book. I said, you know, here's another book. But I started reading, I said, oh, take that, mm-hmm, take that. <laughs> but say, Richard said that after a while I heard somewhere, <laughs> you got some good stuff in there. I can tell when I read your book that this is your magnificent obsession, that you have a, a, a passion for changing people's lives. You're one of those people that I wanted to see and to be able to spend some time with. I'm looking forward to that because I respect you and your work. And I knew that when seeing you, I was going to be in the presence of greatness. And so thank you for who you are and how you have shown up on the planet and the difference and the impact that you're making in this people's business. Because one of the things I sense about you, it's a difference in being in a business and the business being in you. And he's in the people business. Yes. <laughs>